Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Why does making friends as an adult feel so what hard? What should I wear on a first date? What the date? hell is a foreign But that Why hookup was not good. So what do I want my life to look like in five years? We, we want to know too. Since 2012, the Every Girl has been an online destination to help women around the world achieve the life of their dreams. Now, we're excited to bring you the same inspiring content with the Every Girl Podcast. Welcome back to the Every Girl Podcast. This is your host, Josie Santi. I am joined by our amazing podcast assistant, Emma Ginsberg. Hello. Welcome back. We have so many new listeners. I wanted to catch you guys all up to speed who haven't been with us for the past year and a half. I have been the wellness editor for the Every Girl for a few years now, but I've worked at the Every Girl for seven years. Which wow. Is crazy. What is that statistic about friendship that if you're friends with someone for seven years, that statistic shows you'll be friends forever? That's me and the every girl. (laughs) Friends forever. Oh my gosh. That's so cute. I'm also a holistic health coach. I've been coaching clients, helping them get over limiting mindsets, healing hormones, all the good stuff for five years now. Give us a little background for the people on yourself. I am the podcast and editorial assistant. I have been working for The Every Girl since 2021. I just graduated college in May and I moved to Chicago in August. So I would describe myself as very much figuring life out right now. Life at 23 is turbulent in an entertaining way. And we love to embrace that turbulence here at The Every Girl Podcast. We embrace and celebrate turbulence in all areas of life. We obviously bring on such an array of amazing guests, and every single conversation on this podcast is always aimed to help you be happier, more healed, and tap into your highest self. But before each conversation, Em and I give advice for listener questions that we call our Ask the Every Girl segments. Sometimes it's just me giving some tips. I believe next week will be a solo intro just from me. If you have any questions you want us to answer on air, DM us at the Every Girl Podcast on Instagram. So with that being said, welcome back to our faithful Every Girls. We love having you as always. Emma, what is this week's Ask the Every Girl? This is our last episode of February, so we have more sex and love related questions. And this week's question is, I've been with my boyfriend for three years. We have two cats and a house together. We both have talked about marriage and know that is what we want for our future together. However, the engagement process seems to be at a standstill, and I'm not sure why. Any advice in the waiting period or how slash when to start the conversation? First of all, we have to address the two cats of it all and the house. I mean, goals. Yeah. Like, my God. (laughs) Adulting. Yeah. I love it. This feeling of being in this waiting period where you're waiting for an engagement. Can I address how annoying that is? I consider myself feminist as a deep core part of my identity. And yet when it comes to a freaking engagement, we as women like wait around for men to do something. My initial reaction to anyone in this position is like, why are you waiting for a man to propose? But then being in the situation... It's such a hard place because I, of course, want to know we're on the same page, but I don't want to get engaged feeling like the person's doing this because I told them I was ready. Like, I want them to do it because they want to do it, not because they feel like I want them to do it, if that makes sense. First thing, it sounds like she and her boyfriend have already talked a lot about marriage, so they at least know that they're on the same page of what they want in their future. Because you never know if you want marriage, they don't, or vice versa. You don't want to get married, and they're expecting you're going to get married in a year and have 10 kids. You know, you always want to make sure you both want the same thing out of the relationship. Yeah. So that's a good sign that it sounds like you guys are on the same page in terms of your general future. In regards to actual engagement, If you want to be engaged and you are not engaged yet, you don't know 
that it's coming. You haven't had that conversation. There's only a few options. Option A, your boyfriend doesn't want to get married yet. Maybe he feels like he wants to be in a certain place in his career. Maybe he needs time to save up for a ring. Maybe he feels like a child bride, like I have felt for years, and he feels <laughs> like he's not old enough to get married yet. Maybe your boyfriend is waiting for you to give him the okay. He's waiting on you to initiate that conversation before he puts any action forth. The worst case, he's not sure about your future together. You know, he doesn't yeah. feel like he's ready to commit to you specifically. Considering that you've discussed the future, option three probably isn't likely. Yeah. There really only are those two other options. You don't have to overthink it diving into a whole spiral about why the conversation has or like the question hasn't been popped yet is not going to help. If he has made it clear to you, you are my person, I'm committed to you for my life, then I feel like it really comes down to he's not ready yet mm -hmm. or he's waiting on you. Either way, yeah. you deserve to know, especially when it's majorly affecting your life too. Tips for how to start the conversation. So I'm in the similar situation where I've been with my boyfriend, Joey, for seven years, and he has always told me, because I'm a few years younger, so he's always been like, whenever you're ready, just let me know. So then I'm like, oh, I wake up one day and I'm like, hmm, maybe it would be nice. And now I'm in this exact phase where I'm like, so is it happening? Is it not <laughs> happening? Are we going to stay in a civil partnership forever? Like, <laughs> just oh. like co-parenting this French bulldog. What's yes. going on here? Will we forever be consciously co-parenting? <laughs> and that's the extent of our relationship. And it's so annoying because I'm so used to every thought in my brain. I like say it out loud to him. And this is the one thing where, of course, we've talked about it. But I just don't want to have such a conversation where I feel like the only reason he decided to propose was because I said, OK, I want you to propose to me now. I want to mm -hmm. feel like he fully chose to do it on his own. But then that leaves me in this place. And so that's why I completely relate to this listener that it leaves you in this place where you're like, I'm setting women back thousands of years. I'm just waiting for a man to do something about our relationship. I manipulate jo Joey through journaling, manifestation journaling specifically. <laughs> In January, I have always loved to do a big manifestation journaling, looking ahead one year, five years, highest self journaling, that vibe. I, in the past, have made him do it with me already because I think it's good for him and it's ah. good for us. So we will go through different prompts. <laughs> you know, how do you see yourself in one year, in five years? It honestly wasn't intentional. It was just like very slight manipulation where it was the perfect opportunity because the prompt was, how do you see your life in one year? What's mm -hmm. the best version of you in one year from now? And then we like share answers and I make him go first. And, you know, turns out he didn't include anything about it, about an engagement. Okay. But it gave me the chance because then I was like, oh, well, that's funny. I wrote down that we'd probably just likely be engaged. That's kind of concerning if you don't feel like you're in that place. And he was like, I'm not going to write it because I'm not going to tell you. When it's coming. Right. So it opened the door wow. to conversation is my point. So I yeah. use light manipulation. I think going through a manifestation exercise together, mm -hmm. first of all, is very cute and very you. Second of all, is not manipulation. It sort of feels like healthy communication. Manipulation, <laughs> otherwise known as healthy communication. <laughs> it feels like it might be healthy communication disguised as manipulation. Pat on the back, Josie. Yeah. Even yeah. when I try to, to manipulate, it's still healthy. Mm -hmm. Go me. So honestly, that was for me a great way to open up that conversation without it feeling like I I'm putting pressure on him to do something now so that when it happens, it still feels like this was completely all him, but it allowed right. me insight into where his mind's at. Uh-huh. So some more tips. If you don't want to manipulate slash healthily communicate with your partner through manifestation journaling, bring up this conversation in a totally normal setting. So like when you're cooking dinner at home together or you're driving in the car. Not when your boyfriend's busy getting ready for the day. Pick a normal time where 
they are fully focused on you and bring it up. Like, I want us to be on the same page. What are your goals for the next year, two years? How do you envision our relationship progressing in the next couple of years? If he still doesn't give you any insight and he's like, oh, I, you know, love our our home together. I love our cats. Mm -hmm. I will be a cat dad and love life. And he doesn't say anything about engagement, marriage, next steps. The good part about being in a partnership is that you can be fully yourself. And that should be the best part about partnership in general. So you can ask. You can. You can be upfront. You can say how you feel. So saying something like, what does that timeline look like for an engagement? Or in your mind, when would you want to take that step? What are you waiting for before you do? If he says, I'm not ready yet. Okay, what are you waiting on? What would make you ready? Yeah, you do deserve to know or at least have a certain percentage of certainty. I think there's nothing wrong with asking. We're so often trained in relationships to just not ask or the way that I think this conversation is portrayed in TV and movies is very serious and people can have really strong reactions to it. But like you said, it can be so casual. It should be casual. You're having a conversation with your best friend about what you guys want in your life together. Yeah. That's all it is. The other thing to think of, though, is if his answer is, oh, I haven't thought about it. I'm not ready at all. That's not something I would be at all interested in in the next couple of years. And you are really ready. That's something that you really want. That is the definition of being on different pages. And then more conversations need to be had. That's where the question of what are you waiting for is really important because if he's waiting because he knows the amount of money that he would need to be able to purchase the ring and he's waiting to feel in that place, great. He has a goal. He knows what he's working towards. But if he's like, I'm not sure about the way we communicate in this way, so I don't know if I want to commit to us as a marriage yet. Then that's something that's like, do you have doubts about us that you have yet to vocalize? Are there certain things that then we need to work on as a couple? Does that change how you feel knowing that he's having doubts about you? Either way, you deserve to know. If you were to ask them, are you ready to get engaged? They know the answer. You deserve to know the answer too. Agreed. The last thing I would say to this is don't view this as a waiting period. There is literally no such thing as a waiting period. You are not waiting. You are living, sister. So obviously have this conversation. Vocalize your needs. If you feel really ready to get married and to take that next step, then obviously I want you to have those conversations. But then don't think about it again. Go have fun with your friends. Go live your life. You are not in a waiting period. The moments before getting engaged is not waiting. This is a really special time of your relationship still. You're getting to... Build a life with this person. You are the mother of two, I'm sure, very adorable cats. You have a career. You have friends. This is not waiting for the next step. This is not a lesser step than engagement. This is still an important time of your life. So go out and live. That's amazing advice. A good way to address the waiting period is similar to the advice that Eli Rallo gave about waiting for your soulmate. If your soulmate was coming one year from today, what would you do if he was going to propose, I don't know, like three months from today? What would I want to do? I think is a good way to make it feel less dream. Yeah, just to not worry about it and not to give it any thought. If you knew when this was coming, you wouldn't have to feel stressed, worried, concerned, trying to figure out. You would just be. You would be able to currently enjoy this time that you're in. Anything else? I feel that this listener is not looking for advice from someone in my current days of life. But I'll say what I hope for in my future. I hope to be having regular conversations about this. And honestly, I can be surprised by the day in which it happens. I want to know down to the month. Why is that? Do you not like being surprised? I feel like this is the kind of thing that I would not want to be surprised by. It feels like a big enough life event that I, I think it would stress me out more. Who knows if that's how it'll actually be, but I hope that in general, we all normalize having a more open dialogue. I totally agree. Open dialogue is everything. 
Just wait, Emma. You think you're a strong woman, and then you'll find yourself in a relationship <laughs> where you're like just waiting for someone else to make a decision about your life. And then you'll be like, how did I literally get here? Yeah. No, I'm kidding. It's such a personal preference, too. I've had so many friends that they want to be involved in every decision. They kind of help plan their proposal. They know everything yeah. down to the T. Yeah. And then other people want to be completely surprised. You know, it really is just personal preference. Today's episode is with somatic sex educator Kiana Reeves. Okay. No. Is this not an actor's name? Keanu Reeves. Is the Keanu actor, Reeves? Like the guy from The Matrix. I feel weird that we have yet to address that this is literally an actor's name. No. <laughs> She's going to listen to this episode and be like, I get that all the freaking time. Yeah. Anyways, Kiana. Kiana Reeves. Not to be confused with the Keanu Reeves. Right. Correct. Kiana Mm -hmm. is an amazing somatic sex educator. With the topic of sex, I like to have a wide variety of perspectives come on the podcast because it's actually been a huge part of my healing to understand my sexuality through learning from these incredible experts. It is information that I haven't heard before. So I want to bring this to you guys. For the other people out there who feel seen and empowered and healed by hearing that there are other ways to view sexuality and pleasure than what we hear from mass media and culture. My conversation with Kiana yet again changed what I thought I knew about sex. We get into so much from talking about our identity as sexual beings to the slut archetype and internalized shame to foods and supplements to take that can boost your pleasure. She also shares really great relationship tips as well, such as why chemistry is like a magnet. It's a very interesting conversation. Get your notes app ready and please welcome Kiana Reeves to the Every Girl podcast. The way I said that sounds like AI. Welcome, Kiana. What were some defining moments or experiences in your life that made you so passionate about advocating for sexual wellness and women's pleasure? I was always interested in sex and sexuality. But it was really when I became a mother and went through this massive shift, but also I was a single mom. And so there was a massive shift in the way that I felt like the world would or could respond to me as a sexual woman that kind of lit a fire in me to continue to explore all of the possibilities in this world. That's so interesting that you had this Maybe like awakening is dramatic, but I don't know what word you identify with (laughs) after you became a mother, because I have heard from so many friends who have had children and they feel like they have like lost their sexual self. It's almost like you have to give up that version of you in order to be a mother. Well, that is why, because the identity before your mother, you're seen as a young, free woman. You have all of these freedoms to meet a partner where they're at, essentially. And I couldn't do that anymore. And that really scared me. I was afraid that I wouldn't find somebody who wanted to be with me living the life that I had, which was taking care of a small child. I think there's a particular tenderness around being a single parent with a really young infant and wanting partnership. And then also going through the physical recovery. You know, I took a year before I even dated because it really is an extraordinary amount of demand on your nervous system and your psyche and your body and really trying to feel into what sexuality feels like in that space is the thing you're speaking to for people in partnership because they're tired they're kept up all night they're often breastfeeding the relationship dynamic has changed the relationship split of responsibility has changed I'm sure also the relationship you have with your body, you view your body differently, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. So how was that process for you? Were you able to tap back into your sexual self, your sexual body after having a child? I learned so much after my first son. And then I had a a second child three years later. And it was really after my second. So I was in partnership at that point in a co-parenting dynamic And just pretty exhausted by the whole experience. I was a stay-at-home mom at that time. My partner was traveling a lot. He was a musician. And we really had a hard time finding our connection in the sexual space. It was such an identity shift for me where I had always been 
very sexual, very sensual. And those first few years, especially when I was breastfeeding, it didn't come back online for a while. And it was that investigation, that reflection actually from my son's dad that was like, hey, where are you? Like not really showing up in this space in our relationship. And I was offended. I was like pissed that that was the way that he was experiencing me. But it was interesting reflection to be like, okay, your sexuality is not static. It is an ever fluctuating relationship that we have with ourselves. And it fluctuates and reflects the state of our emotional well-being. And so when we feel stressed or overworked, or disconnected from ourselves, when we're not experiencing the world through ourselves, but we're doing it for others all the time, it's hard to find the space to get back inside and go, yes, I want this. Because there's so much relaxation and restoration that wants to come before that moment of connection again with other. Do you believe that giving birth or being pregnant had an effect on your relation to your sexual self? more because of it was like the hormonal effect on libido or was it more of like an emotional distance from your body or relearning your body in a different way? I think it's all the above and it's probably a combination of all of them. When there's intervention or there is a traumatic experience and trauma and not like that felt traumatic, but actually the body's like still trying to work it through. There's still a lot of emotional charge. There's still a tightness around the experience it actually can hijack your nervous system in a chronic way. And that makes it very hard to be in your body and in your sexuality. There's also the hormonal component, like you talked about, and that was big for me. Breastfeeding, I think the prolactin very much impacted my traditional experience of my libido, which at that time tended to be more spontaneous desire. And spontaneous just means hey, I'm suddenly thinking about sex. I'm suddenly horny. It pops in my mind. And what it pointed me in the direction of was responsive desire. And I didn't know what that was at the time. So learning how your body gets turned on first and then the mind catches up after the fact. It comes from responding to a stimulus. And then there's a relational component too. And so I I think it was all three of those things that really had an impact on me and my relationship to it. And then of course your body changes. If you have any type of episiotomy or you tear or you have pain during sex after giving birth or breastfeeding for two years and you just don't want your breasts or nipples touched, all of these things have a pretty big influence on how we want our bodies to be touched. And it can be hard to communicate those. And so instead we just go, okay, this part of me is going to shut off for a little while. I know so many women can relate to that, whether they're went through childbirth or not, like it's wild how many changes as women our bodies go through. Obviously, I have heard of so many people that become pregnant and they're like, all of a sudden, I'm telling my partner, don't come anywhere near me. Like, don't touch me. Get the hell away. And I'm so disconnected from my sexual self. And then motherhood is a whole different way of learning your new body. But then there's also women going through menopause. They have a different relationship with their body. They have changes in their libido. And then on a more micro level, all women who menstruate go through many different fluctuations throughout one month. It's wild how much we as women change and how much our bodies and lives change. And yet I feel like no one equips us with the tools to understand how to flow with our pleasure through those changes. How do you recommend that women support their bodies going through all of these changes that we experience in a lifetime? Yeah, so... It's beautiful. You use the word flow. And I actually think that that is key to understanding our nature because we are cyclical beings. And I don't think we do that well as a society, right? We live in this very streamlined, efficient, you do the thing when you say you're going to do it because that's the structure and the timing that we're doing it. And so if we're flowing beings that are meant to be able to rest during our menses, and that are meant to experience different kinds of emotional waves dependent on what our hormones are doing, and that our bodies need different types of work situations, different types of timing situations. And then you look at the society at large and realize like none of those structures reflect how we're biologically wired. We're biologically wired for community and motherhood. We are biologically wired for rest. Like we need to rest during our menses. The way that our uterus expands and get heavier, 
We're meant to not be heavy lifting, heavy stressing, heavy working. And it's trained out of us. In the United States in particular, it is not built into our structure of understanding in our psyche or in our emotional centers around how to care for ourselves at these different seasons. And it leaves us going like, well, I wasn't prepared. Of course you weren't. No one's prepared for postpartum. We're getting better at it because people are finally realizing like, oh my gosh, postpartum is one of the hardest times I've ever gone through. I can't do it on my own. That I need meals brought to me. That I won't be able to get out of bed if I have stitches. That you need someone there day in, day out to help you. And we've lost so much over the last few decades and centuries. We've lost so much of our community, our understanding of our bodies, that understanding of how important women are to other women. That's so true. The world we're in is kind of setting us up to go against our bodies. And so like, of course, we're having physical symptoms, emotional symptoms, like, like, of course we are. I really loved your example that you shared about going through different life changes and what was once spontaneous desire for you, then you developed a reactive desire. And that's so interesting because I've heard those different, you know, erotic blueprints or types of desire, but I've never heard that they can change in one person through different phases of life. And I think that in itself is really important to realize for people that your sexuality can change. And rather than resisting it, I feel like maybe that's how we go with, like you're saying, the flow of how life changes and our bodies change is we are listening to what our sexuality needs rather than trying to force it into a box that it's been in before or that society tells us to go into. Yeah, exactly. The responsive desire and the spontaneous desire in particular are important because the desire piece is a really good model for people who feel like they don't have a libido or feel like something's wrong with their sex drive. Because you can have both at the same time, and one can be more primary and one can be more secondary, and they can flip-flop depending on your stress levels. And to feel empowered in both, and that both are natural, normal, beautiful components, it, it takes the kind of self-blame out if you don't have a quote-unquote normal libido, which there's no such thing as that. Do you feel like pop culture has affected the view we have about our libidos and also about sexuality in general. Like I I feel like what we see in mass media and culture is the spontaneous desire. We don't know any different. So if you don't do the research on your own, you're not going to think that anyone's experiencing what you're experiencing when in reality, everybody has a different desire. That's not what pop culture would have you believe. Oh, completely. Yeah. If you're learning what sexual connection should look like from the media and from porn, which I think is largely the mass majority of people in the U.S. because we do a very poor job of educating people in their teens and as they come into puberty. And then you have your three resources, your instinct, which is fine, but then all your cultural influences are layered on top of that. So you might have internalized body shame, you know, internalized religious shame, lots of past experiences that blend into what we would consider instinct. And then you have the media, which is largely heterosexual. It's a largely penetrative sex-focused narrative where you suddenly go from attraction into intense, passionate kissing, into maybe a little fondling of breasts and ass. And potentially there's a little scene of little oral sex and then it's penetration and then boom, you both come together. And that is such a false again, we'll go back to this like streamlined, efficient, one direction, one road kind of idea around what sex should look like. And so we're left having a lot of people who are very unsatisfied in their sex lives because they're bored and they are not physically satisfied. They're not reaching these peak ecstatic places of physical pleasure, but also the connection that's possible with partner. This is such a necessary part of our expression and the way that we get to be known by another. And if we don't get to explore it, it's like letting a part of ourselves die. Wow. Sad. That's so true that there is such a formula of how media tells us sex is supposed to go. And I think also as our sexual identity as women, we're taught a lot of information. There's like the classic slut shaming, even on a both like overt and subliminal level, like Taylor Swift having multiple boyfriends and the media being like, what's wrong with her? And that doesn't seem like slut shaming. But then when we really unpack that, that's actual 
slut shaming is oh, at the sure. root of that. Yeah. And then there's also like the type of women in rom-coms that are the seductress and like sexy. There's all these messages about what you can and cannot do. And I think that messes a lot with women's expression of self and their yeah. ability to connect with self. Yeah. Let's talk about slut as an archetype for an yes. example, right? Please. Because slut shaming is probably one of the most common types of internalized shame because a slut is essentially someone whose body is open and available for sex at all times, who's willing or potentially interested in a darker type of sexual experience. And also intrinsically, our association is will not be valued by the masculine, is not valued, is dirty, is degraded as a young woman. You're seeing some friends start to become sexual and maybe they have multiple sexual experiences. And then all of a sudden they're considered secretly kind of slutty. And we go, all right, I don't want to be seen as that. Okay. That's bad. Can't do that. And so we start to turn off the hungry, wanting darker parts of our sexuality and our sexual appetite because of how we may be perceived and how it might affect our ability to be lovable. And then we end up in marriages in our twenties, in our thirties, and there's a piece of us that has been left on the table, this part of us where we don't know how to access it. And in fact, our partners are likely craving that energy from us. We have to refine it or we never find it and we end up in bedroom boredom. How do we find it? Like, how do we identify and remove that ingrained stereotype and pressures and information that is not useful, like the slut shaming? Like, how do we remove those things to be able to find our authentic sexual selves. In the world of embodiment, we do a lot of work with archetypes around sexuality because when you're looking to expand your expression of what you can find in your own self, you often have to practice off of not what you can find in you, but what you see another person doing. And so an archetype is Essentially, it's a mental idea of what that might be like, what that might feel like. And it tells us potentially that's an energy in us that's dormant and we can activate. And so you could literally watch a movie with someone you consider more dark and sexually open and slutty if you want to lean into that particular energy and look at the way that person moves, look at how they talk, look at how they express through their body. And then take that into practice, put a mat on the floor, make it a yogic practice, do a half an hour of finding how slut wants to move through you, what the version of you that is darker, hungrier, sluttier in nature, how she wants to move in you. And you'll find all these really cool nuances. And even if it feels really foreign and really weird, eventually by the end of that half hour, you will have found a few little sparks of these moments where you're like, oh, look at these little light bulb moments. And it's that practice over and over again with different energetic expressions, different versions of yourself, both alone and then bringing it into partnership that will really expand your ability to find new places to explore alone and together. That's probably a lot of allowing yourself to be uncomfortable because I would imagine mm. during those practices a lot of I feel really silly or it's like the good girls don't do this you know it's yeah. a lot of things like that may come up and it's allowing yourself to notice I would imagine and yeah. sit with it and allow it and not stop just because those feelings and thoughts are coming up yeah exactly I know that you said that word embodiment what is your definition of embodiment because I feel like it's a word a lot of people hear but don't really know what it means yeah, it is. It's a little bit of like a, a hype word right now. Buzzword. Buzz, yeah, buzzword. So to me, there's two ways that I feel embodiment and the importance of it. To be embodied to me, being able to be in your body, which means you can fully inhabit the present moment and feel through your body everything that's going on, not just with your mind. The second realm of embodiment it's different from like being embodied. It's like being able to embody something. That to me is talking about your level and ability to express through your body a particular type of energy. So I am embodying queen or I am embodying, like actors do this all the time. Angelina Jolie embodying Maleficent. 
and literally bringing in energy through her body, through every cell in her body so that you feel the truth of that in her. What a superpower. Like, what a cool way to frame it, being in your body and embodying a certain power that makes you feel that energy that you want to tap into. I want to dive into that sexual wellness category, because when we talk about wellness generally, sex is not usually a part of the equation for a lot of people. You know, they go to nutrition, fitness. Very rarely is physical health equated with sex. So I would love for you to share why sexual pleasure is an important part of overall wellness and some health benefits of sex. If we're just looking at it on a biological level, there's a really cool thing that happens when you're in pleasure of any kind, but particularly sexual pleasure. All of these very positive mood-boosting neurochemicals like oxytocin and dopamine get released, especially during orgasm, but during sexual pleasure in general. And those have an impact on your nervous system. They help to regulate stress levels and cortisol levels. But also when you are in pleasure, when you're in a moment of pleasure and you're able to be fully immersed in it and fully experiencing it, you are very embodied in that moment, which means you're in present time. And that is so valuable for us in a culture that's always moving forward, that's so fast-paced, that's so future-oriented, to pause and be in the moment. Pleasure in that sense is a medicine, a meditation. And then on top of that, you're right, sex is not considered necessarily a part of our health and our well-being. Like we talked about earlier, if you're deeply satisfied in your sex life and in your sexuality and you feel met either by yourself or in your partnership or your multiple partnerships, you're going to have a certain level of satisfaction everywhere else. And because it's such a biological experience of satisfaction, when we satisfy our biology, when we satisfy our bodies that deeply, it impacts everything else we do. And so I actually think it's kind of like a vitamin or this core nutrient that you need and the benefits trickle everywhere else. We actually did have Jaya on the podcast and she called an orgasm her vitamin O that she takes every morning. I know. I love the definition of it, though, because we're moving away from the historic shame around sex where it's like only sex for procreation, only when you're married and whatever. But it's still like sex is something that's good for your relationship, something that you do for the sake of your relationship to help with intimacy and connection. But it's so rarely until recently acknowledge for how beneficial it is for you as a human, as a soul, as an individual. And so I love that you call it a vitamin or that it's like this nutrient for you because I think it removes this idea that sex is something you do with someone else to cement your relationship. It's actually something that you do for you. And so you have to tap into that power. You have to find your sensuality and it's a key piece of your overall well-being and fulfillment of life. Well, and, and it reminds me of this thought I was having last night, which is that the two biggest myths around sexuality is that if you're single and not seeing anyone, that you don't have a sex life. And number two, that if you're in relationship and that you're with someone else, that you only have a sex life with them and not yourself. Like those two things, I think, do so much damage in the way that we understand and relate to our own eroticism. And guaranteed, my best sex life and my deepest erotic experiences are because of the space that I've created by myself to explore my eroticism. And that feeds into my partnership, of course. And we have a beautiful sex life, but like that space is primarily and originally mine. I mean, our desires and our needs and our wants and our inspirations and all the things that trickle in into our sexual expression come from a deeply subconscious place. There's nothing as freeing as that feeling as being in relation to yourself in that way. I want you to go off on this a little further because for people who are like, wait, what do you mean? Like that is true. People who believe these myths, Go off about why. Why like yeah. why is sex a personal practice and how do you cultivate that? Yeah. What? This is a random thought, but this is where I'm starting because it's what 
popped into my head. There's a reason that the church ultimately outlawed masturbation for centuries because pleasure is power and pleasure is freedom in the body and pleasure is feeling good. And when you feel good and you feel freedom, you don't need an external source or an external authority directing your entire life. That's why the body has been so demonized, particularly the female body. And if we bring that down into, okay, then how do I explore my own sex? Like, what does that even look like? It's not just masturbation. Masturbation is awesome. And I think solo sexual practices can go so much deeper and we often allow ourselves to go. But our erotic nature is alive in every moment. And you can have an erotic relationship with anything and everything. And I'm not saying you should have sex with anything and everything. I'm saying you can feel your eroticism in response to the world around you at all times. And if you look at the world around you, you look at the way that the wind rustles the leaves and think about how does that feel for the tree to be moved? Like, how does it feel for me to be moved by the wind? And you take in life as a sensual experience, you start to turn on and you start to almost always be turned on and not just sexually it's not like just like you want to go like home for everything that's it, it's not that's a big a very like kindergarten understanding of it it's that our eroticism is the source of our life and our energy and then you could take that a little further and go into so have a solo sexual practice what does that look like what do i bring to that space and a lot of people will just use vibrators and get to the point and there's no shade for vibrators. I think they're great for a lot of people to explore different sensations. But what is my shade is that straightforward, direct path to anything. Just trying to get it over with. Because what you lose there is exploration. And what you lose there is depth. And sexuality is deep. Eroticism is a deep well. It's a, an infinite place to explore. And so when you go into a solo sexual experience and you actually feel your heart, and you feel different sensations in your body and you feel and start to notice, oh, I have maybe some sadness here or some loneliness here that wants to be felt because I'm feeling my body and I'm giving it the opportunity to be felt. And you pair your sexual desire, not just with pleasure and joy, but with grief or with anger or with all of the feelings that want to be felt, all of your yearning all of the ways that you want to be known, you start to pair it with your desire for how you want life to feel. The amount of healing and the amount of in-touchness you'll have with your deepest self is, I think, unparalleled to any other way that we explore ourselves. What a beautiful way to explain being erotic beings rather than like turning on this piece of us, it's like living with this as who we are rather than turning something on and off. I feel like there will be some people listening that will have this question. So I just want to ask it. But for yeah. certain couples who feel like masturbation is a form of cheating, mm -hmm. what would you say to them? Oh, it's not. It is not a form of cheating. Praise and bless your partner for keeping their sexuality alive and intact. The only threat to your relationship is secrecy and feeling like you can't share your full self. If someone's feeling like they have to sneak off and masturbate or sneak off and have a secret porn addiction or a part of their sexuality isn't welcome in this space, a part of their sexual needs isn't welcome, not that they have to be met, but they're judged. That's really the real threat to the relationship. But masturbation is awesome. It's like, do it consciously, doing it in a way that like keeps you in touch and in tune and you're not just trying to get off, then have at it. Do it together. Do it side by side. Watch each other. Learn how your partner likes to touch themselves. Let your partner learn how you like to be touched. There's just so many possibilities with masturbation. It's funny how with every other form of our well-being and sense of self, we realize how much we need both individual and time together. Like when we talk about, you know, our nutrition and well-being, like, sure, it's really fun to go to the gym with your partner, to do a class with your partner. But you also know you need your time to like journal, meditate yeah. by yourself. So just because you want to go journal, meditate by yourself isn't cheating on your partner. It's mm -hmm. only adding to what you can bring to your relationship together because you are serving yourself as a whole individual first. 
And then you can bring that energy to your relationship. It's just so funny that like we acknowledge that and realize that. But then when it comes to the sexuality, we have these different ideas of like solo is lesser than and solo isn't. It's like solo and that experience is what allows you to have the full expression with your partner, too. It's like a, a crucial piece of the puzzle, not something like you said, that's threatening it. Yeah. Yeah. And you said something that reminded me of this idea. The truth is there's moments for merging and there's moments for separateness. And unless we have that separateness intact, it can be hard to feel excited by the other if it just feels like sameness. And so the practice of being in your own space and magnetism happens because there's two different poles holding two different energies and are drawn to each other. And so if we are just in the space of sameness and oneness, how are we going to pull towards and feel that dynamic spark and the connection of two beings bumping against each other in a fresh way? And Esther Perel, in her Mating and Captivity book, she talks a lot about seeing your partner in their purpose, in doing what they love, in being like on stage speaking or, or something that's just them when there's an other to look at. It's so refreshing. It's such a reminder that they're not us. Like they don't owe us anything. They choose to love us every day and we them. And so that dynamic tension comes more from space than it does togetherness. We need a balance of both. That love is often safety and closeness and intimacy and passion and chemistry. Dynamic tension happens more when we have space. You mentioned like living life more erotically and adapting pleasure and sensuality into your being. I would love to know some tips or rituals or things that people can do outside of the bedroom to increase their pleasure inside the bedroom. So like how you set up your day, rituals, little tangible things that anyone can do to improve their pleasure. The first one coming to mind is track your breath and your breathing. Breath is the most underrated and one of the most important tools to be fully embodied. Because when we're with our breath and we're breathing fully, our nervous system starts to regulate and we become available to be immersed in the moment. One of the biggest things that gets in the way is like, I'm in my head. I can't get into the actual feeling state. And breath is your number one tool to take you into that capacity. And so throughout the day, notice, where is my breath in my body? Most people breathe up into their chest and it's very shallow. Particularly women are taught to hold their bellies in. And so we don't do deep belly breathing. And really, if you can throughout the day, just go, how am I breathing? Oh, I've been in very shallow chest breathing for like three hours. And take a few minutes to get familiar with that sense of how nourishing breath can feel. When you take a good breath, actually, let's try it right now. Try to just find your like deepest, most delicious breath. It's almost like drinking water when you're really thirsty. Like it has the same quality where you're like, oh, I was, I was starved for that. And then the second one would be noticing an awareness throughout the day of how you're moving and how you're posturing your body. If you're sitting at a computer all day and you don't move at all and you're hunched over and tight, you'll probably notice a lot of tightness in your shoulders. You're not going to be inhabiting the lower part of your body too much. So you might not have that much sensation there. And getting up and taking some breaths and finding the ways your body wants to move and keeping that as a continual flowing practice weaving throughout your day, you'll have much more of an integrated experience with being able to then in a sexual moment feel what your body wants. When you just said that, I realized that I've been like hunchback of Notre Dame like all day. (laughs) Even the breathing that we just did, it did make me realize how both physically and energetically when we are breathing in our chest and it's like up up here, even just like the energetic and physical flow within our, for people who know like the chakras, like the sacral chakra, and, and like we're separate from it. We're separate from that part of our body that holds so much pleasure and possibility. What are some herbs or supplements or plants or foods that can support pleasure or increase sexual health? Yeah. The first place I'll go to is talking about Floria, which is the company I've been with for over six years. It has been such a 
cluster of misinformation, particularly for women and female folks, to have to decide what toxic lube to use. And we make incredible products that are organic. They're all plant-based and they're made with ingredients that stir arousal. Arousal is the process of blood flow coming into the genitals. So warming herbs, plants that help the body relax and that full line, multibotanicals, love it. The second thing I will say is talking about supporting your body with stress response because stress is the number one killer of sex drive and libido and will cut you off from any kind of eroticism. That's because our sex hormones and cortisol have the same kind of mother hormone back way back when where hormones are created in the body. And the pathway of hormone creation, if you're stressed, will prioritize the cortisol over your sex hormones. So anything that you can work with to help quell stress response, I think number one is taking caffeine down or out of your life. It's out of my life completely, but I'm super sensitive to it. And then adaptogenic herbs that help your body calibrate and be a little more flexible towards stress. So maca, ashwagandha, rhodiola, American ginseng, but get it from a really good source. There's lots of beautiful herbs that help the body. CBD is another one that helps adaptogenic stress response. So those would be a, a primary place to go. And then there's herbs, of course, that are well known and revered for helping you have a higher sex drive and get turned on. Damihana is one of those. Cacao is another one, like aphrodisiac type herbs that are more for in the moment, not for chronic stress, but more for ooh, like making the moment even more fun. Zinc. Zinc is another huge one that's important for sex Zinc. drive and sexual response. Really? Yeah. Is so that like why oysters? Yeah, I was just gonna ask that. Okay, that's yeah. why oysters are an aphrodisiac because yeah. they are high in zinc. Exactly. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. I want to go back to what you mentioned about the products that Euphoria has. And, and it kind of reminded me of that meme. I don't know if you've seen this where it's like the millennial or Gen Z girl who's like, I only eat organic and I have all clean, non-toxic skincare. But then they're using latex condoms and like disgusting KY Lou. But it's like, that is so counter what you're trying to do with your body. And so yeah. I think that it's a really good point. I believe that's the next huge wave of wellness products, period, is realizing that everything that we are using, both externally and also internally in our bodies, needs to be clean and needs to be non-toxic and needs to be ingredients that we trust. I think even like toys, people are starting to make toys that are less plastic and more non-toxic. Yeah. We haven't really talked that much about before as a culture, but I feel like that's going to be as it should be a bigger deal. Oh, huge. And especially if you have a vulva and a vagina, because that's the same type of mucosal lighting that lines your mouth and it goes straight into your bloodstream. So anything you put in that tissue absorbs into your body. And it's also a very sensitive microbiome. So that's like tampons, obviously, like anything that we're putting in, we should be aware of. Absolutely. I also love the point of using herbs and different supplements that are focused on stress relief, a question that we get and something people are interested in are, what are the aphrodisiacs and what are the supplements that's going to like rev my libido? But in reality, most of us have a pretty good libido. You know, like we don't need yeah. to change. It's more like we need to be removing the factors that are inhibiting it from being able to operate as it's meant to, rather than feeling like you need to enhance or boost or change or all these things that we talk about with libido. Yeah. And it's like, is it your libido or is it something happening in your relationship or is it something happening in your life that's disconnecting you from your sexuality? We're so programmed to want like a little blue pill to fix a problem, but we're not willing to look at the circumstances that created it. I feel like we can all agree to stop blaming our libido, to stop feeling like we can be boosting it, changing yeah. it, increasing it. Maybe your libido is perfect as it is and it's yeah. other factors going on. Your libido is 100% a reflection of what's happening either in your biology or in your environment or in your relationship. Kiana, we are going to wrap up with some rapid fire questions. Love First it. One Fun. for you, your favorite sex toy or position? Oh, God. I'm going to do both. So I have been working with a cervical wand and doing some cervical de-armoring as my what? next phase of excitement in my life. And that is one that I'm really excited to continue to do. I'm also a fan of jade eggs for proprioception and for resensitizing intravaginally. 
And then favorite position. I think I have too many. <laughs> it's hard. It's like picking your favorite like shot. being tangled up. Yeah. Tangled up. Just That's like, a tang- like a tangle. Yeah. Am I showing how lame I am that I have no idea what the cervical, what would you call it? Cervical wand? Yeah. Cervical I have no wand. idea. What is that? Okay. So there's a woman who teaches this really amazing course called self-cervix and her work is all around de-armoring the cervix and creating more pleasure and more sensation and orgasmic potential in the cervix. And so a cervical wand is a very long wand. And the one I have is, I think, glass or silica. And it can reach right in there and then you hold it against different points and you use it to create very, very gentle stimulation. And then you pair it with breathing and expressing what comes up because a lot of the points can be really intense especially mm-hmm. if you've had any scar tissue any surgical stuff happening in the area there can be a lot of emotion and tenderness there so the purpose is like increasing pleasure using nerve stimulation yeah yeah it's essentially waking up so dre is a process of resensitizing mm-hmm. and allowing parts of our bodies that have gone numb or because the way that our bodies work is will create a protective mechanism around injuries and so even if it isn't a physical injury but it's some kind of emotional or reflexive response the body has to protect you it'll keep holding in that contraction in that tension and so dearing is the process of being with the body with so much presence and you bring a lot of pleasure into it too so that the body can start to unwind and share and essentially express what needed to be expressed, what needed to be felt when something else happened, but we didn't have the, the space to heal, to feel it. And so that's the same. You got to feel it to heal it. But it's essentially that you're feeling the stuff that's being held in the tissues, giving it the space to unwind and express. And then Often what happens in de-armoring practices is sensation starts to come back online where there was numbness or pain starts to dissolve into some kind of pleasurable sensation. Whoa. I can't believe I have never heard of that. I've done a lot of pelvic floor physical therapy to try to like get over pain and the clenched muscle like you're talking about. So I'm going to have to dive into that. Oh, yeah. My friend Rahi Chun, colleague extraordinaire, does incredible de-armoring work and I highly recommend his course. Okay, I will Google him after Mm -hmm. this. Next question. A song that makes you feel empowered or sexy? It's always Beyonce. No matter Uh, what I do since I was like 15. How could it not be Beyonce? Yeah, it just is always her. But I particularly loved her Lemonade album. Each Beyonce album is like a different sexual energy to tap into. A different era. Best piece of advice you've ever received? I think of my grandma. When I think of advice, because she was just so full of practical wisdom. She was from the Depression era. And I'm going to go with, I have her like whispering in my ear right now. Her favorite one was always, if it is to be, it must be me. And there's something that I think she just lived by that. And she had such an amazing, rich life full of community, full of friends. If she had an idea, she brought it to fruition. And I think that's a quality that I inherited from her. Thank you to your grandma. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Last question, a book that changed your life. Women Who Run With Wolves. Clarissa Pinkolest is understanding the landscape of the feminine psyche and the archetypal stories to help us understand ourselves. Keanu, you blew my mind so many times. This was amazing. This is amazing. Really fun to have. Thanks for having me. Where can everyone find you and get more of your insight and advice? Me personally is at Kiana.Reeves on Instagram or KianaReeves.com. It's my website and my offerings. And then Foria is at Foria Wellness on Instagram, F-O-R-I-A. And foriawellness.com. And the Foria team was nice enough to give our listeners a code. So for you guys wanting to try, you can use the code TheEveryGirl20 for 20% off. I'm going to be using this code. What are your favorites? What should people start with? Awaken for sure. Awaken to like wake up sensation. We have a lot of testimonials around orgasmic capacity, pleasure capacity, arousal. That's a 
hero product bestseller for a reason. And then if you have a menstrual cycle where you experience a lot of cramping, a lot of discomfort, the relief belts, I think are probably one of the most life-changing things that people who are chronically in bed for days at a time on their cycle. I do love their menstrual relief products. Those are amazing. Is the Awaken oil the same as the arousal oil or are those different? Yeah. So Awaken arousal oil is to help you get turned on and help you reach a lot more pleasure. And then we have sex oil that is a glide. It's moisturizing. It helps make everything feel slippery and moisturized. And then intimacy melts are a really cool companion for Awaken. The melts are for internal pleasure. And so Awaken Plus Melts is a super amazing combo. And then you sex oil, it talks to you, everything nice and moist, and you're good to go. Everyone, do yourself a favor. Yes. <laughs> go go get the oils. I was going to recommend the arousal oil. That's a game changer. But I'm going to use the code and try the internal melts. That oh, fine. Yes. Phenomenal. Kiana, thank you so much again. This yeah. was such a joy to talk to you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I know I sure did. Please do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe. It really makes a huge difference for our show so we can keep growing and bringing the content that you love. If you want more info, you can find us at The Every Girl Podcast on Instagram or theeverygirlpodcast.com. Talk to you next week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.